With the news media covering increasingly more news about data breaches and security and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor, we are here to help you mitigate potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello, and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host, and I'm so happy you're joining us today. Welcome to the 21st episode of my show. I'm really excited to have this platform to help raise the awareness of information security and privacy risks and issues. Also, to highlight current issues that really need to be discussed more, and I also love to provide listeners with practical tips and actions to help improve information security and to better protect their privacy. Please check out my website, Simbus360.com and PrivacyGuidance.com. Now, my June Privacy Professor Tips message was published on June 1st. Did you get yours? Well, if not, sign up for them. They're free. You can sign up for them by going to privacyguidance.com and submitting your email in the box in the upper right part of your screen. And please send me an email letting me know who your privacy or security go-to person is. It might be somebody at your work or in your personal life. I'm recognizing privacy and security heroes in my monthly Privacy Professor Tips messages throughout 2018. Now, today my tip of the week relates to a recent news story about a woman who is in Portland, Oregon, and she found out that her private conversations were accidentally or secretly recorded by the voice-controlled Alexa digital assistant from Amazon, which a lot of people have. And then Alexa sent a copy of the recorded conversation to one of her random contacts in Seattle. Now, I want to make sure that listeners know that any device that is listening for you to say a wake word is also potentially recording what you say and taking actions that you may not want it to take. Keep in mind this, in the effort to make their devices as easy to use as possible, cybersecurity and privacy controls typically are either disregarded altogether in these smart devices or they're not addressed or tested Appropriately, most smart devices are not engineered for data security or privacy. So here's my tip for all types of such smart listening devices. To be safe, keep them turned completely off when you're not using them or when you have guests around them or when you're discussing sensitive information and otherwise would not want anyone to hear what's going on in the room where your digital 
assistant is located. Also, read the privacy notices for the smart devices that you are considering buying. If they don't have a privacy notice or if their privacy notice indicates that they're sharing your data with an unknown number of other unnamed third parties, then don't get the device. Also, demand that smart device makers build in security and privacy controls. You know, vendors of these products have actually told me that if they don't hear from their customers asking them to build in security and privacy controls, then they're not going to spend time or efforts to build them in. So make your voices heard and tell them you want those controls. Now today, I'm discussing a topic that is so misunderstood for so many reasons. The general public has heard statements so often from our government leaders during the past few years, particularly about the Russian hacking activities, that if you don't catch a hacker in the act, then... There is no way to tell who was doing the hacking or where they were hacking from and what they were doing. Haven't you heard this from some of the politicians on TV? Well, this simply is not true. Generally, those government leaders who are saying this either were given bad information or this is just wishful thinking on their part. They need to listen to an expert. And today, I am very happy to be speaking with probably the most knowledgeable expert there is for this topic, and also a longtime friend and colleague of mine who I've learned a lot about uh, cyber forensics over the years from. But, you know, what I've learned is still just a drop in the bucket compared to his expertise. Today, my guest is Dr. Peter Stevenson, who is a cyber criminologist and researcher. Peter spends his time in retirement specializing in cyber threat analysis, cyber criminology, and cyber jurisprudence. Peter's lectured extensively on digital investigation, and he's written, edited, or contributed to over 20 books, as well as many hundreds of articles and peer-reviewed papers in major national and international trade, technical, and scientific publications. Now, Peter's career spans 53 years, and he's lectured or consulted for the past 45 years, Peter obtained a PhD at Oxford Brookes University in the UK, focusing on structured investigation of digital incidents in complex computing environments. Peter also has a master's degree in diplomacy with a con- with a concentration in terrorism, and he's currently pursuing a PhD in law focusing on cyber jurisprudence at Leicester University Law School in the UK. Peter's website is drpeterstevenson.org. Peter, thank you so much for being my guest today. Welcome to my show. Well, thank you, uh, Rebecca. Welcome to uh, the Cybercrime Research Lab. Yes, well, I'm happy to be here with you, and I have so many questions. Uh, First of all, though, how would you describe 
to the general public with all of these, you know, false beliefs that we hear in the news all the time, how would you describe what's involved at a high level with digital forensics? Well, the best way for me to answer that, Rebecca, is to uh, take you back a few years. Sometimes for me, it feels like a few decades, but it really wasn't. Um, And I was getting on an airplane coming back to the U.S. from the U.K., and a flight attendant noticed that I had a book uh, on on uh, forensics, mm-hmm. and I tossed it in the seat, and I was going to read for at least part of the uh, six-hour trip, seven-hour trip, whatever it was. And uh, she asked me what forensics was, and I was kind of uh, um, thinking about how do you answer this kind of a question uh, <laughs> for a uh, – uh, for a flight attendant who probably uh, is limited in, in computer exposure to the things she has to do for a job, like most people are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my response was, um, if something breaks, could be uh, a machine, a computer, a human body. If it breaks, we want to find out what broke it and why it broke it. And that's forensics. And with digital forensics, then it's with computers. anything computers. Well, yeah, that's the that's the high level answer. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and that makes sense. Now I know that you've taught so many classes. I mean, so many classes to so many IT professionals who are new to digital forensics. How do you, you know, when you start introducing digital forensics to the IT folks, how do you describe it? to prepare them for what they're going to start to learn? Well, a typical class of mine usually has IT folks or, or budding IT folks or security folks or budding security folks. Occasionally, I get a lawyer or a law enforcement officer. And so it's kind of a mixed bag. Uh, typically, though, the approach I almost always take is we're dealing with digital evidence. Mm-hmm. And we want to know some things about that that evidence. First of all, we want to know its provenance, and that means where it came from. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because we have something that purports to be evidence doesn't make it evidence. Uh, so we need to know where it came from. We need to know that it's been handled properly, and we need to know where it fits into uh, our examination of a computer or a network or today um, – Perhaps your microwave. Uh, we've got so much that's mm. not typically thought of as being uh, part of the digital world, but there's a lot out there that, that absolutely is that we don't think about. So uh, I think the thing that comes to mind most, most readily are uh, hospital devices, medical devices. Mm-hmm. And oh, yeah. That's a, that's a serious problem because... Now, the, the old saw that, well, you can't kill somebody by hacking into a computer is no longer true. Exactly. Um, yeah, there's, uh, when I was getting ready for some surgery a couple of years ago, I opened up my brand new BlackBerry Priv while I was waiting in the room where I was surrounded by all these medical devices. I thought, hmm, I'll just uh, check out and see if I find any open access points on the devices. And I found 
over a dozen of them in that room alone. Uh, and it was kind of scary because I could have gotten into those devices and did some nasty things if I wanted to be a nasty person. But, uh, yeah, it's just really amazing. So how did you get into digital forensics? Didn't you start out in cryptography or, um, you know, in that area or am I mistaken? Nope, you're fine. Um, actually, my answer to your question is I don't know. Uh, <laughs> you know uh, there are times when you find something and there are other times when something finds you. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I guess I started forensics um, back in the mid-1980s. We didn't call it digital forensics then. Um, we we called it uh, oh, varying things. It was a technology. It was a technique. We're back to this thing about, uh, well, it isn't really a, a forensic science. Um, there was a guy years ago by the name of Mike Anderson. Um, Mike came from the IRS. He had done uh, a lot of training and uh, had kind of brought uh, digital forensics, which at, those, at that point uh, the feds were calling it computer forensics, um, and he'd kind of brought that into the IRS and done a lot of training. He retired from the IRS and started a company called NT Systems. And uh, uh, so I think that was probably the first formal course in, uh, in digital forensics that I ever took. But I had been doing it well before that. Uh, today, I think we'd probably call it data discovery. Oh, okay. And that's becoming even more and more important, it seems like. So, uh, so how have you seen the, the tools and the methods change from back then to today? I mean, have they changed that much or have they changed drastically? Drastically. Um, when I was uh, working with Mike, uh, and I did uh, after the class, which wasn't much of a class for me, uh, because I, I had already done all the things that, that he uh, had in his class. And, and the purpose for, for taking the class really was I was going to write about it in one of the publications that I wrote for. Um, and uh, in those days, we used, and we still do to a certain degree, we used um, what I guess I would call point solutions, uh, individual tools to do individual things. Mm-hmm. Um, then along came folks from NCASE and FTK and and some uh, a couple of companies that aren't with us anymore, and they started pulling those together into a single unified uh, tool that had a, a nice um, a nice GUI, and uh, the old tools didn't. The old tools were all command line, and and you were in serious trouble if you couldn't uh, if you couldn't do command line for both uh, Linux and uh, or Unix in, the, in those days mm-hmm. and, uh, and Windows. So that has moved along. It was sort of uh, targeted at law enforcement. That was the big customer. Uh, mm. corporate, the corporate world hadn't, hadn't twigged to it yet. Um, it all seemed too expensive and too complicated, and what do we need that for anyway? Mm. And you look back... Um, Oh, maybe 25 years or so. Uh, it was uh, it was really hard to get an, an organization to admit that they'd been hacked. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, since they they were never hacked, they would never need forensic tools. Apparently, I guess that was mm-hmm. the rationale. Uh, but law enforcement did, and law enforcement was focused on things like illegal gambling, mostly child pornography. That was that was probably the thing that drove 
that generation of forensic tools more than anything else. And today, uh, it, the pendulum swung the other way. Yes, law enforcement depends upon it, uh, but now our tools have sort of morphed into, into two areas. One is the kind of digital forensics we think about in a law enforcement environment where we have to be very careful how we handle the evidence and such. And the other is for intelligence purposes. Uh, we don't have to be so careful with intelligence files. We just need to get the information. It has to be accurate, and we have to get it in a hurry because lives depend on it. Oh. Uh, and organizations now, uh, corporate organizations, have started depending more and more on, on forensics tools. And now we have a generation emerging um, where we're using things like machine learning and, and other um, next-generation capabilities to do automated forensics, live forensics, which is um, one of two types. We have dead box forensics and we have live forensics. Dead box is when we take an image of a disk and analyze it. And okay. um, live forensics is when we go into the computer um, and we watch what's happening on the spot. As it's going on. So as yes. as for our listeners, and I forgot to tell you this too, uh, Peter, but we have a lot of listeners who aren't in the IT area. So when you're talking about the disk, that's basically the hard drive in the computers that you're talking about, correct? Um, yes. Yes. So. And then just uh, to a, a former reference, GUI, general user interface, is the GUI is um, the short term used for the general user interface, just for our listeners who might wonder what, what a GUI is. But, um, you know, you mentioned that you don't have to be so careful now with some things, but others you have to be careful of. Is that for what uh, you would call the chain of control to be able to use what you you need to be careful with so that you could use that for evidence in court or are you talking about something else? No, we're talking about chain of custody. Um, the chain of custody is uh, our ability to account for every person who has touched a piece of digital evidence from the time it was taken to the time it's used in court. Um, and that's that's a tedious process. It requires a lot of documentation, but cases are won and lost on chain of custody. Um, when we talk about uh, intelligence, speed counts. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, not only does speed count, accuracy counts, but we don't have to be quite as careful with chain of custody. Obviously, we want to protect our digital evidence from being contaminated, mm -hmm. but... Um, the process is somewhat different. Okay. So that helps if, uh, like you said, there's hacking going on. Let's just say, you know, in 2016 with all the elections and we had all these activities we've learned about now, not into the voting systems itself, but into the registration uh, files uh, and also the servers or the systems that housed them, at least attempts were made. Um, that would be where you'd probably want to work quickly and uh, make sure that you could either identify and stop what was going on or identify and watch it. What do you think they would do in those cases with um, you know, people trying to hack into the voting registration uh, files? Would it be just watch to see if they could catch them? You know, 
you've you've really hit on um, kind of a, a, a bunch of contradictions that have bothered uh, security people for as long as we've had forensics, mm-hmm. um, and that is, do we stay up and running? Do anything that we possibly can to stay up and running, because that's our job as IT professionals is to keep the performance up and uh, make sure that our customers have access, or do we stop and do an investigation uh, Mm -hmm. to find out what's going on? Well, what's happening is that we're finding that that very thorny problem is not quite so thorny anymore. Oh. Uh, Because we can do both. Uh, There are a lot of tools that are evolving, and there are a few that are actually fairly mature, that watch the network, they mm-hmm. see these things happening, they alert, and then um, while they're doing that alerting, they're also capturing the data that we need to conduct a, a digital investigation. And I ought to sort of step aside here just a minute because we talk about digital forensics as if it's all computers, but in point of fact, uh, I probably spend more than half of my time, nearly uh, nearly two-thirds of my time um, on the network and out on the Internet and uh-huh. dealing, with, dealing with things that are going on uh, in the computer underground and tracking uh, payment card fraud. That's all forensics. It's just not the same kind of forensics that we use on a, on a computer. So if your PC gets compromised... Um, I'm going to use a different set of tools than I'm going to use when I'm out crawling around the internet and going places I probably shouldn't go, but go every day. Wow. So with other types of networks, like um, with our electric grid uh, going through the U.S., there's a lot of components to that, and there's, certainly there's parts of it that are hardwired, there's parts of it that are wireless, there's a lot of activity going on, so you would probably be looking at not only the devices themselves, but trying to see what's going on between all those devices also to help prevent you know, a shutdown through a hack. I mean, forensics could be used for something like that. Yes. Um, If we think about digital forensics broadly, Mm -hmm. uh, which today we must, uh, the answer is absolutely correct. We we can do that. The thing that we have to remember is there's some history here. And some of that history um, relative to these uh, systems, which are are called SCADA systems, they're they're supervisory Mm -hmm. control systems. And they're the things that, that make the generators behave, and they're the things that, that actually monitor the, uh, the electric meter on the side of your house. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so these systems are, are complicated systems. They have a lot, of, a lot of moving parts in them, not necessarily actually moving, but the electrons certainly are. Mm-hmm. And um, so what we find ourselves with is... Some of these systems, uh, parts of these systems, are connected to the Internet, which Mm -hmm. is a case where um, in order to be comfortable and sit in your your home office and manage uh, all of the the electric uh, 
uh, system here in the Detroit area. We have to connect all that stuff to the internet. Well, there was a time when you would never think of doing that. You'd never, never think of uh, of, connect, of connecting a SCADA system uh, to the internet, but mm-hmm. we do now routinely. So, as I said, they're they're complicated systems. They have they have pieces of them that are computers like we use every day. They contain data, databases, that kind of thing. And then we have endpoints that are actually sensors. Sensors are pretty stupid. They mm-hmm. don't they don't they don't save a lot of data. So doing forensics on some of these sensors is a waste of time because there's nothing to do forensics on. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a, a lot to do forensics on on some of the computers that are part of, of the management system for those sensors. So when we get to that, the fact is we don't treat it any differently than any other computer in any other network. And I imagine that will become so much more important, too, as time goes on, just because of all the the new types of devices being attached to the electric grid. I mean, that's a a huge interest area of mine. Uh, I was working and have been working with NIST on the electric grid and the smart grid since 2009. And you know how you you said at one time there was nothing attached to the, the Internet. I can tell you in some of the meetings I led their privacy group, work and uh, we would have folks, lawyers from the utility swear up and down as late as 2012 or 2013, we will never have anything connected to the internet and look where we're at today. It's like, oh yeah, we need to think about that. So uh, I anticipate you're going to be pretty busy, maybe you already are, with looking at uh, the different issues involved. So you know, we have a, a a break coming up here in a few minutes, but I wanted to know, talking about digital forensics and how, you know, some organizations didn't used to really think about using them. Do you see more organizations now having an actual digital forensics team within uh, their IT area or security area? Or is that only in the larger organizations or what is the trend there? Larger organizations and government agencies may have a small team, a small computer forensics team. Um, but typically what we're seeing is the same kind of decentralization we're seeing in security departments. Companies that used to have whole security departments now are uh, embedding security professionals in the various IT shops around the world that are part of their organization. We're beginning to see a little bit of that with forensics. It's still early days and um, a lot of um, a lot of uh, uh, organizations simply don't uh, have these kinds of uh, uh, of resources. Uh, forensics is mm-hmm. expensive to do. Small mm-hmm. companies don't even try. They usually contract it done. And even the big companies will very often contract it to avoid conflict of interest. Well, yeah, and that makes sense. Now um, we have a time for a quick break. Uh, right now to hear from our valued sponsors that I appreciate so much. So Peter, we'll be coming right back to continue our conversation. We're speaking today about digital forensics with Dr. Peter Stevenson, a cyber criminologist and researcher and expert in uh 
Digital Forensics. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the Privacy Professor. You can contact me with questions and comments about this show, as well as show suggestions, using my email, RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com, and also through my website, Symbus360.com and PrivacyGuidance.com. Please stay with us. We will be right back after these important messages from my sponsors. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy, and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyprofessor.org. Rebecca Harold and Associates offers information security products, privacy and compliance tools, education and consulting. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages she has published since 2007. Visit privacyprofessor.org for help and answers to your questions. Have you heard about Symbus360.com? The Symbus system includes information security, privacy, and compliance management, policies, procedures, and forms, third-party and vendor management, training and awareness, breach response and management, employee tasks and assets management, and risk management automation. Symbus also offers Alien Vault Unified IT Security Management at reduced pricing and also cyber liability insurance with limits up to $25 million. You need to find out more about the Symbus system. Visit Symbus360.com. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, and we're speaking today with Dr. Peter Stevenson, a cyber criminologist, researcher, and digital forensics expert. So let's continue our conversation. So we were talking about digital forensics, and I had mentioned how, you know, we hear some people on the news, some politicians, when we talk about these hacks, talking about what can and cannot be determined during an active hack. So, uh, Peter, in what ways can digital forensics be used during an active hack? Like, can you tell the source of the hack or the method of entry? And what can you actually tell using forensics during an active hack? So, as I understand it, we've got eight hours for this show. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Maybe we'll get the Reader's Digest version. <laughs> um, first of all, let's go back to something I said a little earlier, the difference between live forensics and dead box forensics. Oh, okay. Um, if you want to look at something in process, you've got to do live forensics. 
And the reason for that is only with live forensics are we actually seeing the computer compute. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're seeing um, communications in and out of the network uh, connections to the computer. We're seeing uh, what's called processes, which means the little programs that the computer runs. Most of the time, we don't even know what they are as users, nor do we really care. Uh, but sometimes it's very important, uh, the things that they do. Uh, we have ways of, of looking at the traffic streams out of a, a computer system, out of a network, and making a determination, for example, whether there's a piece of malware on that system and uh, mm. whether or not the piece of malware is attempting to communicate with its mothership. Maybe it's uh, stealing stuff from that network and delivering it to the bad guys. Mm. Uh, And we may not be able to tell exactly what that is because everything has a price. Mm -hmm. And the price of privacy, real privacy, is that we encrypt. So if we encrypt uh, the connection in and out of our network for privacy over the Internet, well, our network can't see, uh, our network tools can't see what's going over that, that connection either because it's encrypted. Mm-hmm. So, so we know that there's a lot of data going, uh, but we don't know what it is. So I can't look at this and say, hmm, somebody is downloading our entire credit card database. Mm-hmm. I can't tell that. But what I can do if I have the right tools on my network, is I can trace back the path that those data are taking uh, to get to the, uh, the, the external connection to the Internet, and I can look at that, and I can make some, uh, make some assumptions. And then I can, once I make those assumptions, I can look at the computer that I think is at fault and see what's happening on that computer. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that, first of all, there's no magic bullet. Mm-hmm. Second of all, uh, it's not something that you look at at one place and say, aha, that's the answer, unless mm-hmm. you get tremendously lucky. And I've been doing this for over 30 years, and I'm still waiting for that stroke of luck. It hasn't happened yet. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and then the next thing you're probably going to do is you're probably going to do some dead box forensics or maybe some automated forensics on that particular computer and there's a lot on that computer that tells us when things were accessed mm-hmm. uh, when things left the computer when things came into the computer that weren't supposed to so uh, it's a complicated process but the uh, the easy answer to your question is sometimes so when you talk about encryption there are, are different types now you talked about the encrypted path so would that be like if they were using a VPN to be able to come in so you, you don't see, um, you know, the pathway itself, the pipe, the entire pipe is encrypted so you can't see into the pipe. But then you also have encrypted files. So maybe you can tell file sizes, but they're encrypted so you can't tell what are in the, the files themselves that are passing through the pipeline. Well, let's, let's take the pipeline first. Yeah. That's what we call data in motion. Mm-hmm. And data in motion uh, 
the most common example uh, for your for your listeners is when you see that little lock on your browser. Right. That means that that means that there is encryption, uh, and it's it's um, it's usually end to end encryption, but it might be point to point, and we won't quibble because, mm-hmm. as I said, I don't think you have eight hours for this show. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that is the data in motion. Now, the data at rest, those are the files you're talking about. Mm-hmm. If we encrypt those files in place, sitting on a hard drive in a database somewhere, if we do that, then you're really kind of double encrypting mm-hmm. because you're encrypting the file and then you're sending the encrypted file over an encrypted link. Um, I, I do want to correct one thing here, and mm-hmm. that is that when you encrypt something uh at rest, a file, for example, that file is not going to be forensically the same size as it was before you encrypted it. And in fact, in many cases, it's not even just forensically not the same size. You look at it and you can see it's a different size. Mm-hmm. Encryption, encryption that, that contains some compression makes it smaller. Encryption that doesn't contain some compression may actually make it a little larger. Ah, interesting. So, like if you're encrypting using what a lot of people use, WinZip, and they zip their containers and then they also encrypt it, a lot of times you can see besides when you do uh, the zip, it, it makes it a little smaller. And then when you also add the encryption, it shrinks it sm- just a little bit too. That's kind of what you're talking about, yes. how it can change the size. Okay. Yes, and it's not predictable. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I can't say, well, I'm using WinZip, therefore the file is going to be 10% smaller. Uh, ah. That isn't going to help me any. So identifying the file would have to be done by file name. And and that's that's iffy because file names are easy to change. Mm-hmm. Now, can you tell if somebody took a file of, let's say, customer data um, or voter registration, since that's what we were talking about, is there a way that you can tell if a file has been copied and then renamed uh, forensically, or how does that work? Well, there are several ways you can do that. Um, Everything from looking at the file itself to backtracking to the computer and looking at the computer to see... uh, what activity has taken place on it. So there's a part of Windows called the registry, which mm-hmm. uh, has a lot of information that can help you with, with uh, answering that question. Uh, and if we look at the file itself, the file itself has a little piece on it that you don't see. There are ways to see it, of course, and certainly forensic tools see it. But that little piece is called metadata. And metadata is data about data. And what that does is it tells me a bit about some of the uh, activity that might have uh, taken place uh, regarding that file. It might tell me when it was changed, might tell me uh, some file size things, depending upon what kind of a file it is. It might, uh, if it's a, 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 a video file, for example, it can very often tell me what kind of camera was used to take the video. There's a lot of information in there. So, yes, forensically, we can get a lot of information. There's a, a wonderful story about um, about a couple of guys. And this is a true story. 
mm-hmm. I was told uh, I was told this story by an FBI agent who was involved in it directly. And there were a couple of guys. They they were they were druggies, and they had uh, they had a, a big marijuana patch, big marijuana patch, mm-hmm. and they were really proud of their marijuana patch. And so one of them uh, takes a picture of the other standing in the middle of this patch with <laughs> with armloads of marijuana plants. Mm-hmm. And and about that time, the cops zipped in. Well, they got in their car and, and they ran. And the cops were getting pretty close. So they're on a, a, an expressway. So one of them takes the cell phone that he took the picture with and throws it out, uh, out the window. And, of course, a semi, of course, just drove right over it and mangled it. Oh. Well, well the, the cops stopped, scooped up the, uh, the cell phone, and they took it back to the, to the lab. They pulled out the chip. They extracted the data from the chip, the data, the, the uh, photograph data from the chip. And right there in the metadata was the latitude and longitude where the picture was taken. <laughs> so that didn't help them too much. Didn't help them at all. <laughs> <laughs> Except they lost their, their phone, but it left the evidence. So that's Yeah, they, they th- I think they probably lost their marijuana patch, too. Probably, probably. Well, so that would be for smashing. Now, what if they had thrown it into a lake or, you know, some sort of water and they retrieved the treat it from the water does water damage uh, a lot of the forensic value of you know being able to retrieve the, that type of hardware it can um, there are some very very uh, specialized tricks for pulling data off a damaged uh, uh, mobile device like a cell phone or a tablet uh, it takes a lot of very expensive uh, equipment and it takes people with a huge amount of training. But yes, mm-hmm. you can do it. So if it's if your target that threw it away uh, is worth um, catching, why then it would be worth investing probably in, in all the tools to get that data back. Well, um, the, the thing that, that we also have to remember is that a, a cell phone is an electrical device. Mm-hmm. And water conducts electricity. So it's quite possible that even with all those tools, uh, they they can't recover it because the chip's fried. Oh, sure. Sure, that makes sense. So, okay, so with this, all these different ways of doing forensics and so on in mind, um, thinking back now to, again, the because it's on the mind. I mean, here in Iowa, why we just had our uh, primary elections and uh, so a big topic was about, you know, making sure that the elections in 2018 are secure. What are we doing to secure our registration systems in addition to the voting systems? Um, what, what was going on that you could tell in the 2015-2016 timeframe, like with the Russian hacking and so on, that you were able or, or that they, someone else was able to determine through forensics that it actually was Russian operatives? Was it because of the location in the world where the hacking was coming from or was it some other type of digital fingerprint they left? Well, the answer is sort of. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, uh, 
where it is in the world is rarely, rarely reliable because it's very easy to uh, to appear to be somewhere that you're not. I, right. I do it all. I do it all the time. I I, I worry my wife a lot because she's afraid that uh, the people I chase may turn around and chase me back. Oh, uh, sure. And and that's not likely. It certainly could happen. It's not likely. Um, but uh, the reason is that I use uh, a VPN, and I come in from somewhere in Norway or something like that. Uh, so I can be anywhere I want to be. Now, that has a downside, uh, and that is that you have to set it up properly and remember to use it. Uh, you may recall that uh, around the hacking uh, of the election, there was uh, a, a hacker by the name of Guccifer 2.0. Oh, yeah. And Guccifer claimed to have no connection whatsoever with the Russian government. He was an independent hacker, and that was it. He just enjoyed hacking elections, which is not particularly credible, but we'll just leave, <laughs> that at, we'll leave it at that. Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out that Guccifer... Um, forgot to turn on his VPN. And what? <laughs> yeah, he was out online having a chit-chat with uh, somebody. Uh, I don't even remember whether it was one of our, uh, one of our, our uh, law, enforcement, law enforcement officers or, a, uh, or, or a, an editor or a writer or something, but he forgot to, to turn on his VPN. Uh, they traced... Uh. They traced him straight to an office in the Kremlin. Oh, wow. So you're saying if, because of human error, he, if he would have been using his VPN then, you probably wouldn't have been able to tell where he was, but the fact that he just human failure, he forgot to turn it on, that was a lucky break for those of you who are tracking him. Well, um, criminals are no different than the rest of us, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're fallible just like the rest of us are. Uh, so if you're out surfing the internet, um, you want to do the things that you need to do to keep you safe. Mm-hmm. Just, just like Guccifer had to do to keep him safe. Now, admittedly, the, uh, the links to which he had to go, um, because he was engaged in espionage, uh, are considerably different than the links to which the average person has to go. But you still have to be careful. You have to pay attention to what you're doing. You have to be careful about what you click on. And that if you don't, then you can suffer a consequence that for you as an average person is probably every bit as painful as Guccifer did. Mm-hmm. I have a so- very, very good friend who's a, a forensic psychologist. Mm-hmm. And and he's not really a friend of computers, but uh, I got a call from him one day, and he said he described a, a, an event on his computer, and I could tell immediately he'd been hit by ransomware because oh. he clicked on the wrong thing. Oh, uh huh. So I have a, a good friend who's a forensic psychologist, and he's not a real good friend to computers. Uh, he insists it's their fault, but <laughs> still. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got a call from him. Uh, this has been a couple of years ago. I got a call from him, just panicked. And he described some activities that his computer was 
apparently doing by itself. And I Mm -hmm. knew immediately that he was hit by ransomware and Uh had and had uh, clicked on the wrong thing. Yep. And that's the the problem with ransomware, by the way, Mm -hmm. is that by the time you know that you've been hit, it's too late. It's too, yeah, you can't unplug your your connection and and save yourself, right? Everything is, everything's already encrypted. Mm Mm-hmm. If you look at the code, you'll find out that the notification comes after the deed is done. Yeah. So what did you what did you help him with? Did he want you to, um, you know, fix it for him? Well, of course he did, but he's in, <laughs> he's in Pennsylvania and I'm in Michigan. That didn't work well. Right. Uh, I sent him. He was at a university. Actually, wasn't at the time. I think he was down in Texas, uh, at a university down there. So I uh, I sent him to his IT shop, and of course the IT shop called me and said, "How? Do, what do we do about this? We've never seen it." Remember uh-huh. now, we're talking two or three years ago when ransomware wasn't as common and there right. weren't as many uh, solutions to the problem like there are today. Although mm-hmm. by no means is it is it fixed. It's still an issue, but it was a bad issue then. And I talked their IT shop through it, uh, and he was able to, fortunately, he had, he had good backups. Uh, he was good. able to recover. So then did you do anything to figure out where, I mean, he clicked on a link, obviously. So with ransomware, is that something that forensics is used on or has been used on a lot just to see where a lot of the um, delivery is coming from for those ransomware? Or is it because they change so often it's hard to, to catch them? Well, at the risk of sounding like I used to sound in my consulting days, Maybe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, the, uh, uh, the, the problem is that just because you have a particular piece of ransomware, and this is true of any malware, by the way. Ransomware is just malware. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's um, particularly nasty malware, but it's just malware. And uh, the problem is that these malwares are not the exclusive property of the person who wrote them. In fact... The person who wrote them may never use them. They may simply sell them. Mm-hmm. And they may sell them more than once. Or they may have some sort of a rental plan where you can pay them a certain amount in bitcoins every month and, and uh, uh, use their, their ransomware uh, to spread via maybe a, a phishing uh, email or something of that nature. So... You really don't know, even if you even if you reverse engineer the the malware or the ransomware, you really don't know where it came from. You might be able to figure out who wrote it, but you may not be able to find out where it came from. Now that said, there are hacking groups. Uh, most of them are uh, most of them are state sponsored, uh, and these hacking groups use. Uh, Fairly similar, if not the exact same, uh, malware in in multiple attacks. So if you if you can attribute one attack, maybe two or three, you begin to get a pattern, and you add that together with intelligence, and you put the intelligence together with the technology, and you can draw some conclusions. And that's basically what happened. Uh, it's a grossly oversimplified, mm-hmm. basically what happened, but it's basically what happened 
when uh, the FBI and our intelligence agencies uh, figured out what was going on in the elections. It was not one thing. It wasn't who got in, uh, where they get in. It was all of the who's that got in, and mm-hmm. uh, um, and it was all of the uh, all of the where's that they got in, and uh, it just it it makes a picture. There's something that that I learned decades ago in uh, in intelligence, and that is there is no such thing as the big secret. There's just mm-hmm. lots and lots and lots of little secrets, and you have to piece them together like a jigsaw puzzle. Some of those things are intelligence-based. Some of those things are technologically based. Um, and in a complicated hack like we had that showed up in, in the election, uh, and by the way, in the United States, no voting machine, as far as I know, was ever compromised. Right. It was the registration systems that were attempted, correct? Correct, but that's no different than any other computer system. Right. And they, they need to be protected the same as any computer system needs to be protected if it's exposed to the outside world, which clearly it was. But I think that's a, a great explanation when you're talking about many different pieces. And I think maybe that's why we hear, like on the news, when they say, oh, well, we can't tell for sure because maybe they're thinking there's one exact thing that's going to point to Russia or some other nation state. And what you're saying is, well, there's no one thing that's going to point you, but you have this accumulation of all these different pieces, so you put the jigsaw puzzle together with all these pieces, and then you can say with fair certainty that it was Russia then. Would that be a good way to put it? That's a good way to put it. And of course, uh, you're not going to get any help from Russia. Right. Unless (laughs) unless they have a stupid espionage agent who forgets to turn on his VPN. Yeah, or he gets uh, social engineered by somebody talking with him in the dark web. It's possible. It's possible. Uh, So we're getting, we have just a couple of minutes left now, and the time's gone by so fast. But, you know, like I mentioned, we have listeners from all over the world, and a lot of them are with businesses. Some are in the general public. But what would you say would be one or two key points to leave with our listeners today about digital forensics uh, that they need to keep in mind when they hear about this on the news or they hear claims about digital forensics? Well, first of all, the act of hacking is not simple. Um, you can't do it in 45 minutes with time left for commercials. It doesn't work that way. It's mm-hmm. complicated, and so it follows that the act of uncovering the details of a hack is equally complicated. So forensics is not a silver bullet. You mm-hmm. have to use it with intelligence. So you have your intelligence data and you have your forensic data, which today could include everything from network traces to malware, reverse engineering. uh, And all of this is done, again, in the context of intelligence. So that's the the big takeaway. The big takeaway is forensics is not a silver bullet. It's a piece of the the whole picture. And it can be very valuable for that whole picture, certainly. So, I think so it's actually necessary. Necessary. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great point to make. So we're coming to the end here, though. But thank you, Peter, for being on the show. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed it. 
Me too. Uh, you really provided important insights today about digital forensics. So you could, listeners, you can reach Dr. Stevenson through his website, drpeterstevenson.org. Today we've been speaking with Dr. Peter Stevenson, a a cyber criminologist, researcher, and digital forensics expert. I'm Rebecca Harold, the privacy professor. Please tune into the show each week. If you cannot make our scheduled live time, you can listen to all the recordings. You can listen to all my past shows on iTunes, Stitcher.com, Player FM, Google Play, TuneIn.com, Overcast FM, Listen Notes, and CastBox, in addition to, of course, the VoiceAmerica.com business channel and also contact me for any help you might need with information security privacy and compliance keynotes or other help you can also see more information at my website symbus360.com and privacyguidance.com um, send me your questions I'm, I'm happy to to read them i urge you to notice and stay aware of information security and privacy issues as you go about your daily activities go to your job do your daily work or encounter anything else involving your personal information and how it's secured and potentially used in ways that could impact your privacy until our next show ask those you do business with and work for are they doing all they can to secure the information you've entrusted to them be privacy aware in the week ahead bye for now thank you for tuning in this week Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week, stay safe.